Each generation through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. We advance by building on the work of those who have gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told for us, by us. You're listening to Gen Activist. Hey, y'all. Thanks again for listening to the pod. We have an exciting conversation with Bethany Wilkinson, who is an author of The Diversity Gap, um, a book helping people move from kind of empty diversity to real equity. And we had a great conversation with her that honestly, we ended up just talking about um, a bunch of different things uh, that didn't have anything to do with that at all, but it all connects. And so um, it was just a really rich, rich conversation. But before you listen in there, listen in to the conversation that me, Virginia, and G-Mom had about struggling to keep the faith. Mm-hmm. So G-Mom, I just, okay. So like, I just have to keep it real, okay? So with everything that's going on, we've been in a pandemic. Um, you know, we got people acting like January 6th didn't happen and there was no insurrection. We have um, people still acting like COVID doesn't exist. And, um, you know, a lot of these people, a lot of kind of the, the, the ones with the loudest microphones are also like professing Christians, right? And um, so I've just struggled. I've struggled actually for a really long time, probably since Trump was elected, but it's been more pronounced lately with like, how do you just like keep believing? Because it feels like, you know, there are people who are able to do really awful things. Um, and we supposedly proclaim the same faith. And it feels like there, there are people who are constantly protected and elevated while black people as a people in this country, indigenous folks as a people in this country, Latinx folks, Asian folks as a people in this country, have continued to be the recipients of um, oppression and plunder and some of the worst, most inhumane treatment um, and then despite, despite our piety, despite our devoutness. And I just want to know, like, you know, like, I'm kind of mad. Like, I'm kind well, I'm not kind of mad. I'm real mad because I'm like, Jesus, like, when is it our turn, right? Like, we keep saying... He's a just guy and it just doesn't feel like justice is coming. And so, you know, you got some years on me and lots more wisdom. And so what do you think? How do we do this? Well, I think you named it because I, you said the word struggle and I think it is. And I still struggle at 83. It's a struggle, but it's a decision of what you want to hold on to. I can't. I can't relinquish the life of faith to become like my oppressors. It's about, it's about, it's about soul. It's about my humanity. It's about who I am. Uh, So I don't know how we count victory 
because I'm shaken many times too. But I know my victory is that I shall not become like you who are full of venom and hate and oppression. And I don't know how much good my work will do, but I'm inspired by uh, Mother Teresa once when she said, we've not been called to be successful, we've been called to be faithful. And I think I would be very dissatisfied with my life if I were not faithful to the things that I believe are true, eternal, and worth pursuing. Um, and yet, I am not denying the struggle at all. I don't, time is a big thing for me. I don't know how God counts time. And sometimes I'm saying, okay, we know there's this eternal time, you don't count time. But in the meantime, I'm living in time and it doesn't feel good right now. And I don't like it, et cetera. And so I think that's part of being human. But if we could look at time in the longer sense, um, I know that my ancestors have made time count. And I'm a beneficiary of it. And it's not fair in a sense that they had to suffer so to do that, but they did it. And so the question I always ask myself, so do I get a pass? Do I have to do my part in my time? And that's the part where I say, it doesn't feel good. Do you, know, do you think I wake up every morning and say, hallelujah, Jesus, things, things are just fine. No, I have to spend that time searching myself. And at a personal level, I know I'm looking at this evil at a mass, huge level macrocosm, but where in my life am I in a microcosm contributing in the moments and small spaces I have? to a world that's better. And that's, that's the victory, I think. Yes. I just, I sit here and I listen to you and there's such profoundness and there's such wisdom, you know, just, you know, you said, I cannot relinquish my faith to become like my oppressors. And I think that is ultimately like the daily fight. The daily fight is to not become petty. The daily fight is to not become like, well, all right, y'all gonna enact you know, violence on us. When I say violence, I don't always mean physical. I mean the mm -hmm. violence yes. of what it's like to have to walk in this country with as a, through a, in a melanated body. The the violence of microcosm. I mean of of microaggressions. The violence of having to constantly shrink yourself to fit into a space that wasn't built for you. And I I think the part where I continue to find conflict for myself right, is to know that, like, I'm called to this work through my faith, right? I believe my purpose is informed by my faith, right? That I wake up and I say, I want to do the work of equity. I want to do the work of justice. I want to seek out how to tell people stories who have been siloed and silenced. And you say this thing, G-Mom, you say, um, and I know it's a quote, but the way that you articulate it is always beautiful, is where do we see ourselves on the map of human geography? And I think that's the part that Megan and I in confidence have conversations about, which is like, 
But like, when are Black, Brown, Indigenous, Asian American people's place on that map of human geography not gonna have to come through this lens of being resilient, of having to fight, of having to constantly wage war on these oppressive behaviors. And it's not to say that white people haven't suffered, mm -hmm. right? But mm -hmm. it is to detach this narrative that their suffering has come at the hands of not being valued as human beings, mm -hmm. right? That this pervasive ideology of colonialism and has wreaked havoc across the world, across the globe. And I think I struggle with like, when do we get a time of peace? Yes. Right? When do we get a time to just be? Be. You know, because there's kind of this, this joking, but like very real um, TikTok phenomenon going on. Because if you look at like the most um, highly, I guess, followed TikTok users and the ones that make the most money, they're mostly white and they're mostly white women. Right. And then you see these black, brown, indigenous creators who created all of these trends. Right. But it's extracted and appropriated and they don't reap the benefits of it. And so there's been this trend of being like, I no longer want to be exceptional as a black woman, as a Latin, a Latina. I don't want to have to be exceptional in order to be seen. I want to be affirmed and valued by doing the bare minimum. So it's this idea of just like, I just want to be a normal right. woman. <laughs> And like, and that be enough to like make me millions of dollars. And I, you know, I think Megan and I struggle with that in terms of like, okay, there's work that we want to do, but like, I'm ready to just sit in this posture of like realizing that my grandmother can actually retire because there's not still work to do at such a level of urgency. Like we, I wake up to text messages from you and the urgency in your voice is because you do, that we collectively believe that our lives are on the line. And I'm like 83 yeah. years in and you still have to wake up every morning believing mm -hmm. that there's urgency behind your work. That makes me pissed. That's, so that's the part, G-Mom, when you were talking like about our ancestors and their struggle and they, and do you get a pass? And it's like, well, they were struggling so we wouldn't have to still be struggling. But here we are. Right here we are still fighting, you know, the same stuff. And it can just get to the point where, you know, it's like, does it really matter? Is it really going to make a difference or have, you know, are we just in a world where for whatever reason, people with in melanated bodies, you know, our um, re reality in perpetuity on this side of heaven is it's just it's just a struggle right and I just don't think like when I think about that will be done that kingdom come I just do not believe that God's will for us again this is based in my faith my Christian faith um but that God's will for us would be that okay well you just suffer and struggle the whole time you're there and then like you're gonna have this amazing experience in heaven right like where is the glory on earth <laughs> like where is the peace on earth like and it's, it's not just that it's obviously tiring. but it's the sustained peace the sustained yeah. like just being able sure to that crawl the lilies i'm not sure it ever happens i think that i don't uh, like that g mom okay <laughs> uh, but you 
but but here's the deal. Um, so I, we happen to embody this struggle. And I don't know, but the struggle between good and evil will always exist. It, it's one struggle or the other. And for this time, I don't know time in its fullness. Uh, it embodies itself against um these are hard. These are hard concepts. I'm not sure I've had to struggle to get to them. So you can reject yeah. them at any point, just contemplate them. But I think there's a question of, am I my brother's people keeper? I, I believe that I, as one of God's children, am my brother's and sister's keeper, whether they be black or whether they be white. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. I and my brother's keeper when I see other Black people endure the inhumanities, the in, inequities, the indignities that they endure. If I'm in a place or a position that I've been blessed with some gifts to do something about it, then I, I do. Yeah. By the same token, I am, I'm like Martin. I am my brother's keeper when I stand in the face of a white person and tell them what a horrible person you are and that I'm <laughs> going to fight like hell to, um, to, to resist you. I think that's part of being my brother's sister's keeper. <laughs> I had never heard you say so direct. And that was liberating. <laughs> that yes, I'm part of my brother's keeper when I look you in the eye and tell you, because, y'all, if y'all have ever had to, the way I am so entertained watching G-Mom watch MSNBC or CNN and her talk back to the television yes, the them about themselves is pure comedy, pure <laughs> joy, and pure truth. I you think know, what, what it is, G-Mom, is like, you know, my dad, um, before he passed, I was intentionally asking him a lot of hard questions mm -hmm. and, and trying to mm -hmm. actually record his answers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I talked to him about was belief, you know, like, well, how, how do you, how do you keep believing in, um, you know, he talked about a verse in the Bible that says help my unbelief. And, yes. you know, he said, he talked about yes. it just being a choice, you know, oh, it's just yes. a choice. And yes. he said, I just choose yes. every day to, mm -hmm. you know, believe and have mm -hmm. hope. And so that also reminds me in this whole conversation, you know, as we get ready to flow into the very rich conversation that we have with Bethany, um, a book that I read is called Ruthless Trust by Brandon Manning. And I think what me and Virginia are doing is we're searching for clarity. Like we're trying to understand and make sense of these things that feel very um, illogical and unfair. Um, but there's a Mother Teresa quote where someone says, is asking her um, about clarity. And she says, I have never had clarity. What I have always mm -hmm. had is trust. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, where I, on my good days, when I'm in my body and I'm not too livid by all of the things, <laughs> the fake war and CRT and, you know, all, all these things that people are getting away with and being successful in, um, I, I try to lean on that. I try to lean on the fact that, like, yeah. there's so much I won't understand. There will not be clarity, but I can still trust yeah. that um, fundamentally we are making progress and we are making it better for my kids. I absolutely agree. I love what your father said. 
there's a, in, uh, a story in, uh, attributed to indigenous people where uh, it's the elder is speaking to the young boy about the wolf or the eagle. I'm not sure which one the characters are right and how there's a struggle always between them. And he says, and the little boy says to him, well, which one? And he says, these are both in you. And he said, well, which one's going to win? And he says, the one you feed. And so that's sort of your father's statement is, is, is very much my statement. What kind of person do I choose to be? And whose side do I tend to be? And I don't want to keep company on the side of those who, I, 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 I want to be able to look in my mirror and say, uh, that's not the person I want to be. And I'm going to spend my life resisting what you perpetrate on other people and, and the evil you bring. And so that's sort of my piece. Jenny, I feel good when I write a letter or talk to them back on CNN and tell them how horrible they are. I feel so much better. But I think I'm being my brother's keeper, too, because they, they need to know you're a horrible person. So it's the way you choose to live Hallelujah. your life. Hallelujah. So I think what we've decided today is that we are constantly fighting whether or not we're going to be at peace or petty. And <laughs> any given day, yes, <laughs> be either one. <laughs> either one. All right, y'all, check out this conversation. Chin activist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bethany, we're excited to have you. Welcome to the Gen Activist Podcast. Um, really, really excited to uh, record season two with you um, and excited about the work that you're doing in your new book, The Diversity Gap, which we hope to hear more about. But just introduce yourself to our listeners. Like, who are you? Um, what has brought you to this part, How did, to this point? How did you become, you know, a racial justice educator and advocate? Mm. Well, I'm really honored and excited to be here. So thank you for having me. Um, gosh, who am I? I am so many things. I am a writer, a creative person. I am a person of faith. Um, I'm a wife and a daughter and an auntie <laughs> and um, a sister. And those are all identities that I hold really near and dear to my heart. Um, I also am from the South. I live in middle Georgia in a small town. And, um, and the older I get, the more I realize just how this particular place shaped who I am and how I see the world. And so that's really important to me. Um, and yeah, so those are some of the, the titles and the hats that I wear. I arrived at this work, though, through a lot of different things. I grew up in a black household where we talked about race all the time. And so I think I've always had this consciousness about race and racial identity. And I grew up in a, a town that had, I don't know that it was segregated 
at the time when I was growing up, but the remnants of segregation were still evident. And so I was just always paying attention to the black people live over there, the white people live over here, that sort of thing. Um, And then as I got into college and realized that I could study sociology and history and race, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And it just kind of kept going from there. I found myself in communities where my knowledge about race and racial justice and racial history was helpful in helping people make sense of our current context and climate. And I arrived at my work with the diversity gap by just putting one foot in front of the other, um, answering questions, trying to be helpful to my community, trying to be a healthy and whole and healing person myself. And so it's, it's always evolving, but that's an overview. Uh, I love that. I, uh, that's how I got to law school, put one foot, <laughs> put one foot in front of the other, had no intention of being a lawyer. Um, and, and somehow, um, that's where God directed me. So, um, there's lots that I relate to, like in your story, you know, growing up in a small town, I grew up in like Tyler, Texas, which at the time I didn't really, you know, understand the racial history, but now I do, uh, <laughs> just, you know, their rep in Congress is Louis Gomer, who's like the sole vote against the lynching bill. So that tells, gives you some context for Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I totally understand how those like small towns can, uh, you know, and the the kind of lack of diversity in those towns or the way that they are laid out can really shape who we are, you know, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you started with that because the uh, Instagram post that I saw of yours was about traveling through the South and looking at places and wondering what it was like for people Black people in in those times. I think it resonates with me particularly because I'm trying, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. We were just across the river from the South, but it wasn't the South. In fact, when my brothers traveled from Cincinnati to Morehouse, they got on the train with everybody else. And as soon as they crossed the river, they had to go to the back car. So that's a little bit of the South. But I, so I didn't have the experience of growing up in the South, but I'm writing my mother's story now. And she was born in Athens, Georgia, or really outside Madison uh, Fork. Uh, out, uh, and I don't know if that's close to where you uh, grew up. So it, um, I'm, ha- I'm getting all of these. So you're very helpful to me because I'm having these same wonderings now. Um, and the circumstances under which my mother was born, which we may talk about later, but uh, in 1914, I'm trying to see what Madison County Fort was like uh, and imagine it. Um, so you struck a chord with me uh, with that uh, because I don't know the South experience, but I want to know it through my mother and through stories of people like you. So thank you. So I hope we'll get into more of this as we go along. Oh, yes, absolutely. I grew up um, near a place called Madison. So I don't know that Madison County is the oh, same Madi- as Madison. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I grew I used to go to Walmart over there because it was one of the closest Walmarts <laughs> to my town. My small town didn't have any Walmarts or stores. We only had little mom and pop shops, but Madison had a Walmart. So we would go there. Oh, wow. Well, Bethany, I would love to kind of... Um, create a little bit more dialogue around sort of your 
prism in terms of coming to this work through history. That's sort of where my, this conversation for me is grounded in. I think back to my childhood and the incredible opportunity that I had to like truly sort of be a receptacle of both my grandmother's stories and how they connected our family story to these larger contexts of history, right? So there was this idea of like our place in the world connected to these larger themes. You know, I grew up in Austin, Texas. Um, so in the 90s, a very white space and our family, my nuclear family, we were the only black family in most of the neighborhoods we lived in. I was the only black girl in most of the schools I attended. And so while that could have started to be this very isolating um, experience, because I had the opportunity to travel to New York and Atlanta, where my dad's had the family was, and Los Angeles and Cincinnati, where G-Mom is from, I had a strong tie to, like, our stories don't end here in this current context, right? That we have this genesis. And so when I went to college, my sort of entry point was through history, was this idea that before we get to policy, before we get to these cultural social dynamics, we have an understanding of how we got here, right? That these systems were birthed out of certain values, right? That these policies were passed, right? Connected to these stories. And so I would love to hear a little bit more about sort of your exploration of history and how it kind of serves as the foundation of the work you call people into today. Mm. So the story that comes to mind for me, I was, I think I was maybe, maybe 18 or 19 years old. So I was a freshman in college and I was actually in Chicago participating in this week long um, mission volunteer thing. It was called the Chicago urban program. And it was my first time flying on a plane. (laughs) It was my first time being in a city that wasn't Atlanta, Georgia. So it was a big deal as I look back on it. Um, but I was there for the summer and for, for as part of the program, every Tuesday night, we would have an intentional conversation about race and racial history as it relates to Chicago. So this was built into the program. And it was our first or second Tuesday. And we watched two things. The first thing we watched was um, a video about the 1992 LA race riots that happened in the wake of Rodney King's um, death. And the second thing that we watched was a video of a, a, some of you are probably familiar with this. It was a video from a research project where they gave um, black and white children, black and white dolls and help them. You're familiar with what? Yeah. Um, For the listeners, I'm going to do a bad job of trying to explain what this. um, That was a really powerful experiment for sure. Yes. Yes. Super powerful. So I was watching this video where they give these black children a white doll and a black doll, and they're having to identify, is this doll good? Is it bad? You know, all these different things. I highly recommend you look it up if you aren't familiar. Um, And watching those two things one night opened up an entire world inside of me that I didn't even know I was carrying. Um, It was really painful, honestly, and overwhelming to see my lived experience of navigating life as a little black girl mirrored back to me and then to see it tied to these larger social realities as evidenced by what happened in LA in 1992 it just really opened up the whole world for me I was like oh my goodness I have all these feelings I feel my story in that I think my parents how come no one ever explained this to me and oh these dynamics aren't just black and white like there are Asian people and and Latinx people like there's so many of us who are navigating 
society on these racialized terms. What does that mean? So that experience really opened up the history part for me. So when I got back to my university, I shifted everything. I got into educational studies where I could study the the racial history of education in the U.S. Um, And then I studied sociology because I wanted to have a better sense of what these frameworks were again, outside of my context as, you know, a little black girl from a small town in Georgia. So, um, so yeah, it's just a lot of listening and learning and asking questions and, and honestly following the pain points in my own life and story. Um, because I wanted to understand what is happening to me. Why has this been my experience and what does this mean for all of us as a people? That's such a, I mean, that resonates so so much for me, right? Um, one, because I literally studied history and sociology in college. I'm like, oh my goodness. But also I think that that point you just offered is so powerful, this idea of following the pain points. And it really is this search for clarity and context about our own experiences that were not afforded to us freely, right? In our elementary education and our primary education. So we've really had to, we have to seek those things out which I think is so innately connected to this conversation, not to you know deter us into this other space, but around you know critical race theory. And it's this idea of like, no, we're actually just asking for the truth to be shared in our, in our collective educational experience. Because for centuries, that is something that is not offered to us. It's something that we have to seek out. And so when I think about um, sort of this opportunity that we have to not only seek that out for ourselves, but to ask folks to equip themselves with those stories to inform where they are. Megan and I talk about all the time, you know, one of our connections when we were both living in Austin was how can we live in this space that is now seeing mass gentrification that is grounded in these stories of inequity. And you're you're living here and you don't know things like the 1928 plan, which was this uh, policy that was passed in 1928 to forcibly remove black and brown people from West Austin. It was like, that is a critical piece of understanding the current lens, right, of the city that you're a part of. And so um, I just love that that's such a core tenet to the work that you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, so, couple of things. So I'm very interested that you started or even completed as an education major. Uh, That's been my whole life. (laughs) Uh, And so, um, and so now uh, I'm writing now about schools. In fact, I just did a presentation on this whole thing. I think we face a dilemma that I'd like to get your perspective on. So when we trace the history of education for black people and people of color, we find that there was always, it's a history of exclusion. It's a history of oppression or inequities. Uh, And so now we find ourselves in this moment uh, where we're looking at education at all of our institutions. And I'm often reminded of what Malcolm said, you know, when you turn your children over to be educated by the oppressor, what do you think is going to happen? And so there is this dilemma of diversity or building our own cultural capital and our children not having to be uh, exposed. I mean, I've developed some models here where school is organized in a way that says, this is the way we do school. All y'all people of color, if you can get with it and be like us, you might get a chance versus a 
and that's our legacy model versus an equity model that says, no, we need schools that put our children right in the center. And they are the center and the school is organized around them. So it leaves us in a dilemma. And I'd like to hear your comments on that in relation to school, whether diversity is the is the um, desegregation or diversity, you know, we've given up on segrega uh, desegregation. So are we seeking diversity? And I see that you talk about and are a leader in the spaces of diversity among corporations. So I'm really interested in your thinking, how you're reconciling these things. Wow, wow, powerful questions. Um... So I had so many thoughts as you were unpacking that. And I think my answer or my response, I should say, has it's probably changed over the years. Um, what comes to mind is a story my dad often tells me and anyone who is around and listening. He will often talk about how um, the desegregation of schools was the demise of his education in some ways um, and how he wishes it hadn't happened and how he wishes he'd had teachers who could see his worth and his value and how that would have um, just been better for his education overall. And I absolutely believe him and agree. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. And when I think of my own education, um, I was very practiced at assimilating. And so I was able to achieve and be successful in that container. But again, it wasn't until college that I was able to do the work to understand my own history and my own identity, which it's kind of late in the game. You know, I've been in school for a long time. Um, and so I definitely see value in there being schools where equity is in the center and where young black children are in the center and, um, and how we are, and where we're able to build entire systems of support and, and information around them and their experience. I think that's really powerful and important. And when I think about children that I may or may not have one day, I imagine, schooling for them, whether it's I'm homeschooling them or I'm in a co-op school on the farm with some peers, like that's what I would hope for them, that they're able to really be celebrated for who they are. Now, when it comes to diversity for schools, I feel like at this point, I don't, I'm not in the education space, so I don't really know what would be best. Um, and then when I think about my work with organizations, it's kind of a it's kind of a toss up. I'm not always advocating necessarily for organizations to reflect a certain level of diversity. I'm advocating for people to create organizational cultures where everyone in that culture can thrive, which might mean that you have to change some things. And so mm -hmm. if you are a majority white school or church or nonprofit in Iowa where there are no people that aren't white because of history and all these different things in that environment, I don't expect you to like increase your diversity, um, but I would hope that you could find ways to ally yourself with efforts for Black solidarity across the country when the time calls for it. So I'm really wanting people to think more creatively about what's good for yeah. people, like actual people in your context. And it's going to look different depending on who you are, where you are, history, power, money. It's a lot of different things. Um, but I don't know that diversity without a lot of thought is always the best. Oh, I listened. I like your answer. <laughs> we completely agree. Like, I think um, Virginia always um, talks about this quote um, that basically says, like, if you're inviting people of color into spaces and you haven't done the work, you're just inviting them into violence. And so that <laughs> is 
like the epitome of these spaces that are kind of just filling metrics, right? Diversity is very shallow without actually doing the interior work um, to really create a place of inclusion. Um, and so I completely agree. I really, I really want to talk to you about your dad though, because so, <laughs> so, so my dad, you know, often would tell me that he was not sure that desegregation was good. And he felt mm-hmm. like, you know, desegregation had a dire um, uh, effect on Black families, on the education of Black children, um, because then they were required to assimilate. I got very versed in assimilation as well and how to navigate these spaces, especially like my elementary school was primarily white. Um, and then my middle school and my high school were like primarily black and people of color. Um, and so I had kind of like a dual experience, but my dad was very adamant that there were some devastating effects, um, on our community. And I was always like, well, dad, like, you know, should like, what does that mean? You know, weren't they fighting for that, you know, in the civil rights movement, are you saying, you know, and like really trying to think through that. But then I think about my college experience and my dad was hardcore, wanted me to go to HBCU, um, and I actually wanted to go to an HBCU. Um, I really wanted to go to Spelman. It's a funny story. Anyways, I ended up not going, but, and I ended up going to the University of Texas where we were like 3.7% black. And I understood when I got there exactly what he meant because he was like, you know, if you go to HBCU, you're going to be cared for, you're going to be nurtured. There's going to be like, you know, people who will be pseudo mothers and grandmothers for you, you know, you're not just going to be a number, they're going to care about you as a total person. And if you go to a PWI, you're going to be a number and, you know, you're not going to have like a lot of care. And so in those kind of PWI institutions, we had to create our own spaces and we had to create community um, that was reflective of, um, you know, our culture and allowed us to feel like we belonged when like the moment we would leave like the Malcolm X lounge, which was the space at UT, um, you know, all we see are like faces that don't look like us or you sit in a 300 person classroom with people who don't look like you and nothing is tailored for you. You know, like heaven forbid we ask for like <laughs> some kind of equity or, or some kind of tailoring. Well, then all of a sudden we're being exclusionary. Right. And like, that's what's really happening with like the CRT discussion. So I just find all of this to be like super interesting. It's a lot of time, I spend a lot of time thinking about it as a mother now and a avid public school supporter. I am now asking the questions G-Mom is asking. So Bethany, I would love for you to kind of bring us into how this has, this context has informed the work that you do, particularly through the diversity gap. Not only have you built, you know, the, the podcast and you can't wait to hear about the book, but also just how you have created space to um, co-labor with organizations and companies around this. And I love what you said before, right? That um, one, there's no one size uh, shoe, right? That fits all of these organizations. There's so much to take into consideration. Um, and as Megan said, you know, we're often calling folks into this work of co-agitation, which we think is a more active posture, right, than just allyship, which oftentimes is like, we value you, but we're not willing to change anything. We're not willing to be disruptive to our own practices and values. And so I'd love to hear for you, you know, particularly in this 
current position, right, where we saw so many companies just be reactionary, right, to this moment that unfolded in the summer of 2020, like, how are you holding organizations and companies, like, feet to the fire, right, in a way that calls them in, it doesn't call them out, but it calls them into this work, because I think just some of the language I've seen you um, use, I think you're you're really apt at calling folks into the work, right? Mm. Um, and I just we would love to hear a little bit about your philosophy and what you feel like that looks like a year and a half past that inflection point for many companies. Like, how do we make sure that this is sustained, institutionalized work and not just something that happens every time we see that hashtag populate our Twitter? Mm. Yes. Um, it's honestly, it's quite a dance. That's the first idea that came to mind. It's a bit of a dance. And I say that because as I'm working with organizations, it takes a minute to figure out how serious people are. And it takes a minute to figure out how much they're willing to invest in the changes they say they want to make. And so um, I don't know that I have a guiding philosophy, though maybe I do, and I've just never articulated it. I'm just I think what I'm often trying to do is get people to shift the conversation from how do we diversify our talent pipeline to how do we dignify people with our time, energy, money, resources, all of these things. And I think that switch takes a minute for some folks. Some people get it. They're already tracking like, oh, the business case for diversity, it's not it. You know, like that's not dignifying people. But for other folks, they, it's just, they, they don't have that framework because they're still operating in this desire to perform to meet the cultural moment. And it takes time to parse that out. Um, I would say that I arrived at this work, I feel like I kind of stumbled into it because I was having a minority experience in an organization as the only Black woman there for many years. And I was starting to wonder, what would it look like to build a quote unquote, DEI strategy around my experience, not around the performative needs of the organization. And what would it look like to inquire into my own story and the stories of other people of color in these workplaces? And so, I mean, if there is a philosophy, it is always going back to how are people actually experiencing this workplace? How are they actually experiencing this organization? And what needs to change to make it less harmful? What needs to change to have this organization become a place where racial healing and self-empowerment are possible and not racial trauma and harm? And in a lot of ways, that's a new conversation for organizations. And I say organizations because sometimes companies, because they're, they have, you know, they're profit-driven, it's a different lane than when working with nonprofits or churches or values-driven institutions, the conversation's a little bit different. Um, but all in all, I'm just trying to push people to think about actual humans and not about their bottom line, not about their Instagram feed. Are you creating trauma for people? Okay, we need to stop. We need to address that before we address your talent pipeline. If you are a leader or manager or everyday person who works in an organization or an institution, I've created a resource to help you not only diversify your team, but create an organizational culture where people from a variety of backgrounds can actually thrive and resist racism in their organizational context. The book is called The Diversity Gap, where good intentions meet true cultural change, and you can buy it wherever books are sold.
I like that in the center of your dance is the concept of humanity. And I think that that's so much of the call that needs to be done, even though we occupy these spaces as black people or brown people or white people. It really is a call to our common humanity uh, and how we reach that level. And perhaps that's the only way that diversity really has meaning. Uh, but I, 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 there's another part of your bio that I looked at that um, that interests me because we know on the one hand, we want to protect our children. We want them to experience their feel, full humanity in settings that embrace it. We also know that they live in a real world and how, and these institutions hold these old notions of, uh, of superiority of one race over another, or of one gender. So I, I applaud your breaking into those institutions as I've spent a lifetime trying to do in education. Uh, but another institution that I think is of note is the church. And, uh, and Megan talks about it a great deal. Um, and we're caught in this conundrum, I think, of um, blurred understandings of what it means to honor our humanity in, in, the, in the work of the Lord, in God's view of our humanity. And I see that you, you, you attended Fuller uh, Theological Seminary, and I'm in California, and I, and I know people who went there. So I'd really be interested in that experience and how it informed or sent you on a certain direction of wonderings. Um, just elaborate for us a little bit. Yes. So I attended Fuller long distance. And so I wasn't in the classroom, which definitely affected my experience, I think, because I was very much so planted in my context here. And I was in Atlanta at the time and not physically there. Because if I'd gone there, I'm sure that I would have had an entirely different world of experiences, especially given how um, racial justice advocacy at Fuller has shifted in recent years as well. And so I don't really know. I think um, originally I went to Fuller because I wanted to participate in racial reconciliation work at my church, at my majority white church. And I thought that the theological training would help me do that. And to my dismay, I've learned over the years that it's not the theology that keeps people from changing. It's the power and, and all the other things. It's like, I'm, I'm like, I don't know if the theology degree would have helped anyway. Um, even though I wasn't working for the church, I was working for a nonprofit mm -hmm. in the city. Um, so it was time well spent. I learned a lot, but, but it, I don't have any strong correlations that I can draw out right now to the work I do with the diversity gap. Not right now anyway. Yeah, but taking I, it a bit further, how do you view the church in the, the the church in the more global sense in relation to this respect for one another's humanity? Oh, that's a beautiful question. I honestly, I look at the church with a lot of hope and a lot of disappointment at the same time, if I'm honest about where my heart is. Um I think over the last couple of years, seeing the conversations, the actions of the church, it's 
when I say global church, I'm probably thinking actually church in the United States. So not super global because um, this mm-hmm. has been my context. But I find, a, I find that there's so much disappointment in my heart. Um, but then I consider the scriptures and I consider the story and life of Jesus. And I consider this vision of reconciliation and shalom and healing and justice. And, and I find so much beauty and power and dignity and love in that vision. And that's still really compelling to me. And so even though I don't know what to do with the church as an institution, I do think that the Christian tradition has so much to give. And, and I really love it. Yeah, I've been, um, so I think, you know, it's important for people to hold space for the pain of watching the church, the big C church, um, divide really over, you know, people of color, black people asking to have our humanity dignified, right? To have the institutions of this country acknowledge our humanity and make space for it and just to be treated as fully human. And that has been a visceral, um, painful experience for me in like the last maybe six, seven years, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's been extremely painful. And I think that we need to be, we need to hold space for that and we need to be transparent about that. Um, I think that the, the, I'm always grateful that I grew up with my dad as my pastor in a little country, black church with red dirt. The cemetery was right next door. We ate dinner together. You know, we had lunch after church all the time, the fellowship hall, we had the red punch. And, and, and I'm so grateful for that experience because in this time it is the only thing that has sustained me. It is the only thing that has given me hope in the faith that is the crux of who I am. Um, and has shaped my entire life is that I've been able to go back and say, well, this multi-ethnic experience that I had of white people leaving the church because we wanted to speak up about race is not the only experience, right? And it's not reflective of the gospel. And so I've been able to go back to those roots and really kind of almost like dumb my faith back down um, and and kind of like take the milk um, that, that I've needed. But I, I think in the um, larger context, I think it's doing grave damage to the witness of, mm-hmm. of Christ, right? Like, and when people come to me and they're like, I thank you for being this type of Christian, because, because, you know, like, like, I kind of like you, but I don't like Christians. And, and I get it. Yeah. I get it, right? And so it's hard to know, and especially you, as you're going into these spaces and actually trying to do this work, um, like it's hard to hold on to hope. And so I'm encouraged. <laughs> I'm encouraged by, by you saying that you are still hopeful and that the scriptures um, guide you to that hope. Mm-hmm. I also love just holding space for that tension. You said you have great hope, but yet you are very disappointed. And I think that is really powerful. I think we oftentimes don't allow ourselves to sit in the gap of a paradox. We say there has to be, we have, it, our faith has to be completely grounded, right? in the hope, but it's like part of our spiritual walk is questioning. And it's questioning the ways in which these systems and these rituals and these human spaces, right? Oftentimes are disappointing because they don't fully align. They don't fully 
they're not fully enveloped right into what we know to be true. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with her, but uh, Cole Arthur Riley, um, who is the, the author of Black Liturgy, I, I love this. Um, she posted this a few weeks, I think, before she went on a little sabbatical. And she said, if your spirituality doesn't involve breaking the chains of injustice, I want more for you. And I think about that so much in this work of like, I I want more for us, right? But I also want more for these spaces, these institutions, right? That that hold so much power, that hold such a posture of privilege. And um, it's interesting, you know, when I started doing this work, you know, around racial justice, I kind of decompartmentalized, right? Like this is the work that I do in these institutions at the University of Texas, in these big brands around the world, right? And when people started asking me or inviting me to do this space, this work in the space of faith, the space of church, I was a little anxious about it, right? Because I had held that to be such a sacred space for my personal um, sort of narrative that I didn't want to feel like I had to water down who I was in order to be invited or received in that space. Um, And I also didn't want to, um, I didn't want to dilute, right, the impact or the challenging of people into racial justice. And one of the terms that Megan and I were talking about before we hopped on uh, for this uh, conversation was use this term integrated life. And we were chuckling because that's a term that I've used for a really long time. And I talk about the precedent that my that G mom and my parents made where they vowed to live an integrated life where there was no clear demarcation between who they were in their faith who they were in the world who they were as parents who they were were in their profession that all of those things worked together and I, that seems to be such uh, the way in which you have decided to live your life right that you weren't going to decompartmentalize. And I'd be really curious to know how that sort of ethos drove you to write this book, right? You had all these other manifestations of the work, you know, the seminars and consulting that you've done and the podcast and what provoked you to like put this as words to a page? Because Mm. um, G mom knows this. I know this like the discipline, right, of like getting it into words and putting it on page is um, a whole nother commitment. And we would just love to hear a little bit more about the inspiration for that and um, how you got to this point. Yes. So the, I've always wanted to be an author. If you look at little girl Bethany's like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to write books. So that was, it was always something I had my eye to. And there were two mentors who gave me advice prior to me starting the diversity gap book about just book writing in general. Um, One person, she said, she was teaching a seminar on, her name's Amina Brown. She's brilliant. If you don't know her and her work, she's a poet. Um, she said that it's helpful to create a book proposal where you, you know, you go through, you map out your chapters and you write a couple of the chapters out, you create a marketing plan. And she recommended that people do that so that you could figure out if you actually have enough to say to fill a book. And that's super mm-hmm. practical advice. And it was very helpful because I am, can be a big daydreamer and think about all the things I'm going to do. But being challenged to say, hey, do you actually have enough to say about something <laughs> to fill an entire book was a really helpful piece of advice. Um, the second thing that led me to writing The Diversity Gap was another mentor told me um, 
well, he just asked me one day, we were talking about my, my dream to write a book. And he said, Bethany, you know, who writes books? And I said, who? He said, people who have something to say, what do you want to say? <laughs> it was so simple. And I, but I was like, oh, I want to tell people that diversifying your team is not the same as being anti-oppressive. I want to tell people to disrupt racism and to disrupt white supremacy culture. Don't just diversify the your whole team. book. Just that one statement. Yeah. <laughs> end, end of book. Beginning, Period. middle, and end of book. <laughs> and so that's what I wanted to say. And I had a lot to say about it. And then doing, you know, the podcast and research and just making the research a focal point of my life for a couple of years just helped to fill those pages. And so... I just, I mean, it's simple. I had a lot to say on the topic. I had a lot of stories to put in there. I had a lot of ideas. I mean, I think of the book kind of like a collection of experiments and strategies, because like I said, I don't believe in one size fits all, but I want, mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to help well-intentioned leaders think more comprehensively about systemic injustice as it relates to what's happening in their organizations. And then to give them lots of tools and strategies and perspectives to help them find a new way forward. Yes, uh, I think that I'm struck by that. Uh, and I, and it sort of leads me back to the prior conversation. So I was married to a man who was a pastor. We were married 53 years before my husband passed. And he pastored in places that were often seen, quote, integrated, unquote, churches. Um, he was a pastor and the Disciples of Christ, who had had its own struggles, a a religious uh, denomination um, that had really tried to, but fumbled and fallen. And when we talk about the integrated life, it's the meaning of integrity. And I saw that in my husband um, day to day, struggling with the attacks on what he had to say. Um, but still loving the people who attacked him. That was not easy for me. There are times I wasn't as mature in the faith, I think, as my husband was. So there are times when I said, well, why did you let them say that? <laughs> or why didn't you? Uh, but I saw uh, integrity. I, I see in my husband, when you talk about hope, I think I, my husband's legacy to me is to have hope for reconciliation, hope for redeeming, uh, redemption, hope for um, a better world that when we say the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, So I think I saw in him that even though my field was education, this integrity in the way he raised his children, in the way he stood, even when I, I've seen my husband on stages or standing in a meeting and being the lone speaker, uh, while I see these eyes cast upon him. Um, so I, I really wanted to pick up on your piece about hope. I, I still have hope, and I think much of that hope was implanted in me. I can't leave it. I think that's my husband's legacy for me. I can't leave it. Um, And I think that's what we're called to when Christ talks about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So I didn't want to leave that point. I was inspired by your word, hope. Yes, thanks for um, 
thanks for saying that. It makes me think about when I think about faith as a whole and my faith as a follower of Jesus, when I became a follower of Jesus as a teenager, something that always inspired me about Jesus's story was how surprising he was to the people around him. And when you think of the work of the Holy Spirit, I mean, it's like a wind, you know, you can't follow the spirit. You can't always know what God's up to. And so even when I think about the church and all the disappointment I feel related to the institutional church in the United States, I find a lot of hope in the mystery and in the surprise of who Jesus is. And, and I just, I'm like, ah, God's always up to something, even if I don't understand it. And I think that's a part of the hope for me too. I didn't want to leave that word hope. It really struck a chord with me. Thank you. So Bethany G mom was telling me that she came across an Instagram post of yours where you were talking about being in the South and traveling in the South and um, what that's like and and your introspection um, around that. And so I'd love to talk to you, especially as someone who does this work of racial equity. And, you know, we have so many similarities. I also, um, you know, understand your faith experience. And so, and then also being in the South. People say Texas is in the South. I think it's so sick. What else could it be? Listen, <laughs> There's nothing but. We don't but, want to disrupt this whole interview. Anyways, me and Virginia argue about this all the time. It's not the South. In the South, it makes literally no sense for it not to be. It, um, it and so, but also growing up in the South and and processing how that might be different. Um, and I don't know. I want to know a little bit more about this Instagram post and and your reflections of of living and traveling in the South. Mm. So I wrote that. Gosh, yeah, I wrote that a couple weeks ago. I had gone to North Georgia with my husband after my book released. I like, after I do a public thing, I like to go hide. Mm-hmm. And so um, I went to I the did. mountains. I'm an introvert. <laughs> yes, me too. Me yeah. too. Um, and so, yeah, we're in the mountains. It's beautiful. You can feel like fall in the air. The leaves are starting to change. And then, of course, there are the trucks with their Confederate flags and all of their signs celebrating the political candidate that I do not celebrate or support. And I just instantly felt like, oh, this isn't for this place isn't for me. But then almost as soon as I thought that I the next thought was, wait a minute, this place is Mm -hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. no this is for me too mm-hmm. and I have those thoughts back to back and I almost feel like it reset something in my heart and I was able to move through the day a little bit differently and so I live in a rural town now um that you know still see the confederate flags and all these things and and I was like you know what I really am committed to unlearning the fear that I have experienced here in my whole life I'm committed to unlearning this But I also Mm -hmm. want to acknowledge the history that lives in my body because this place has not been safe for people like me throughout the generations. And so it was, the post was just me kind of musing on that thought. And I'm also dreaming a lot about what it looks like to create spaces here in this community um, for Black folks who are trying to return to the rural places, trying to return Mm -hmm. to the land, places where they can do that so that it's safe and healing and restorative for them and not a site of trauma for them. So my, my dad's a farmer. 
Um, he has 40 acres. My husband and I just bought our one acre. Um, we have another 15 acres down the road all on this one stretch. And we're hoping to sell that to a group of women of color who are trying to create safe havens mm-hmm. for women of color. So I'm just like, okay, I'm out here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out here. We are healing <laughs> and we're going to be, we're communing with the land because it is for us. I love this. You use the word unlearning and use the word healing, um, which are both very central to the work of Rosa Rebellion, but also like our own, except telling G-Mom, we did a trip this summer through the South. So we, from Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and then we went to Georgia and back. And it was like me, my husband, my one-year-old and my mom who's 70. And um, like having those reactions to Confederate flags but also just like basic stuff, right? Like, can we stop at this store to go to a restroom or we need like a more lit place or trying to get into, you know, the hotel before dark in certain places, like really thinking through safety. But then also I was like, why do, like, this is 2021. Like, why do we still feel this way? Um, And, you know, my husband, who's very adventurous, you know, wanting to stop in certain places and, well, I just want to go look. And I was like, no, right? Like, there was a real fear of, like, you are a Black man, you are a larger Black man. What does this mean for you, right? Like, Like, that fear. And so I love the idea of, like, deprogramming and unlearning and standing in our bodies um, fully and saying, no, like this is, everything is for me um, and I'm going to be okay. That, that is, um, I don't know, that's something that I think will stick with me that you just said. I love the idea of everything is for me because that is not, that is not the, um, like the, the ethos that we um, were cultivated in many of us, right? We had this clear understanding, even as children, that there were some spaces that, as Megan always says, were not built for us and that will not easily bend for us. And so I love the way that you're, again, sort of your integrated life, that even in your, your personal sort of claiming of space, it is this collective call to redeem these spaces that um, perhaps were the the exact spaces that produced harm against our ancestors and the power of reclaiming those spaces um, to be a part of our healing, our our personal healing, our collective healing. Um, You know, Megan and I, when we think about the the vision of Rose Rebellion, while most of that has had to be manifested virtually over the last two years, so much of the work that we do is about cultivating spaces for women of color to be whole to just be able to authentically show up in spaces. Like one of the practices that I've recently been introduced to over the past two or three years is just breath work. And I think we take it for granted, you know, but to be in a space that, you know, you will unapologetically be able to be you. And there's so much affirmation in the people who are joining in that space. You literally feel this permission to just exhale. Like it's not until you are, the question is posited to you, but like how many spaces are we like literally holding our breath? Even psychologically, if not physically, we're walking into a store, we're doing like a a, a count, like, okay, well, I don't see anyone. All right, well, let me shift my posture a little bit about how I interact with this person. And it wasn't until these last few years, I'm like, have I been holding my breath, right? And so when I think about the work that you and your husband 
and the lineage that you are um, sort of being bequeathed, right? Of like taking space and then like gifting it to, you know, people of color to just be and to create these safe spaces. I think there's nothing more powerful. And I think that continues to be a theme, um, whether it's through the ownership of land or just creating spaces where we can breathe, where we can fully be ourselves. And as Jimon says, like manifest our full humanity. Um, I just think that that is a real space and aspiration that many of us are pursuing in these years. Um, in these next few years is like, how can we take up space? How can we reclaim space um, for our own healing? Can you tell when, us when that? I listen, no, let me see. When I listen to, oh, I'm sorry. We, I just want to pause you, mom, and then I'm going to let you go so we can edit it out. <laughs> oh, okay, go ahead. Okay, okay so uh, this conversation is really interesting, and I think it's, it, it's, it's uh, coming full circle. Uh, so I asked you the question about diversity earlier, and you may have written a book about the diversity gap, and I look forward to reading it. But what this conversation says to me is that you are living diversity. And it makes me think of Christ's word when he said, occupy until I come. Uh, so you are occupying these spaces uh, with courage. And I also remember, so I don't know if it was Dr. King or someone else where I read, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the, it's the determination to do what needs to be done in spite of the fear. So, yes, so we are unlearning this fear. We may not unlearn it all, but part of what Christ gives us is occupy. Uh, that word just became very strong in how you're living your life. Uh, literally, as well as spiritually. So maybe you want to, how does that response on my part, what kind of response does that bring from you? Oh, I love that. I think one of the biggest realizations I've had over the last few years, which is kind of ironic in light of the fact that I do this work with the diversity gap, I've realized that my healing and liberation is not in the hands of whether or not so-and-so boss or pastor or organization chooses to do things better. Um, after doing a deep dive into the research and talking to people, I'm like, uh, I don't know if these folks are going to change. And you know what? That's actually fine because God is good and I can still be free. And so it's, um, it's been a, it's been a process of getting to a place where I have the confidence and the the resources, the privileges that have made it possible for us to buy land and build our home and these sorts of things. Um, and I'm really grateful for it. And, and yeah, I want it to be something that I live. I want liberation and healing to be my life, not an aspiration. And I also think about generations that came before me and how in some ways I do have more options than they did. And in many ways, one could argue. And and I want to make the most of them, even if it's not perfect, even if there's still fear when I see the Confederate flags on the trucks at the grocery store, that's all real. And I have land here too. And this place is for me too, in a way that it couldn't be for my grandmother or my great grandmother. And that's really important and meaningful. Oh, oh that's beautiful. <laughs> it's a great place for us to, to land. 